Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this, once again, is Majority 54. It has been 677 days since our last episode. In that time, I went from running for president, to running for mayor, to dropping out of public life to get treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder stemming from my time in Afghanistan. And as I sit here, I'm in the best mental and even physical shape I've been in since before I deployed 13 years ago. So here's the update on me. About seven or eight months after getting help from an organization called Veterans Community Project, I signed on to lead their national expansion as the organization's president. So that's what I do now. All across America, we're building outreach centers for all veterans and villages of tiny houses for homeless veterans. That's my day job, and I love it. But in my spare time, I'm still grabbing an oar in 2020, doing all I can to help us win. And that includes Majority 54, because frankly, I missed y'all. So we're back, and not for a season, for good. We're going to be with you every week for the foreseeable future. We're rebooting the pod. It's the same purpose, but it's a different format. Now, the purpose remains. Help the 54% of us who didn't vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. The format is only changed because instead of traveling the country, which we currently can't do, we'll be having a weekly conversation about those divisive issues. And in that conversation, arming you with the tools that you need to go out and and speak with the people in your orbit and make a difference because there are more of us than there are of them. And if we are all talking to our conservative leaning or independent friends, then that by itself could be enough to win this election. Now, by we, and that we will be doing this, I mean myself and my friend Ravi Gupta. Ravi is my new co-host, and you're about to meet him. But before you do, let me tell you a bit about him. As I tell you his story, I think you're going to see why Ravi and I get along so well. After graduating from Yale Law, he didn't cash in at a big firm. He moved to Chicago as one of the earliest staff on a presidential exploratory committee for the freshman senator from Illinois. During the primaries, he ran fundraising and voter turnout in over a half dozen states, and he was David Axelrod's assistant during the general. He grew up on Staten Island, and after the election, he got to return to New York as a special assistant and a speechwriter for Susan Rice during her time as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. And after a few years at the U.N., Ravi moved to Tennessee, where he founded a network of Southern charter schools. And those schools are still there, and they're some of the most successful public schools in their states. So when 2016 happened, Ravi's response was to look for an organization he could get involved with that would convene, train, and support the next generation of progressive candidates and campaign staff. He couldn't find one, so he grabbed an oar and he created Arena, which he still runs to this day. I'm a member of the board, so I've gotten to see the awesome impact that it's had these past four years. So that's Ravi. Ravi, meet the people. The people, this is Ravi. Jason, thank you so much. I'm really excited about this podcast. And just a little bit of background for listeners. You know, we've known each other since 
2016, you know, a few weeks after your Senate run, you came over to Nashville and spoke at a big gathering that we were doing called Arena Summit. And one of the reasons why I'm really passionate about this podcast and the conversations we're going to be having is because my family is split politically. My brother and dad are both Republicans. My dad is a huge Trump fan and supporter. And so this project the goal of just having better conversations with people uh, that you disagree with politically is something that's just central to my life right now. So thank you. Every week we're going to be starting each episode with the biggest news items of the week, and we would be remiss uh, if we didn't start this week with the news that the U.S. unfortunately continues to struggle to respond to the coronavirus. We're going to begin tonight with a sudden surge in cases of coronavirus across the country. Arizona and Texas today setting new state records for hospitalizations. Florida's numbers soaring. This morning, coronavirus cases on the rise. Despite what some in the White House are saying, there are alarming new numbers about the coronavirus in the U.S. And we turn now to the coronavirus in several states now seeing a spike in cases. So as of Monday, new known cases uh, are on the rise in 23 states, and it's looking particularly bad in the South and the West. Uh, so in Texas and Arizona, hospitalizations are at their highest level since the pandemic began. Uh, your home state of Missouri reported its highest single-day case totals over the weekend, and the U.S. is largely exceptional in this regard and, and not in a good way. Uh, so you know, one article I thought was particularly salient was uh, in the Times this weekend, Michelle Goldberg said, if you look at graphs of the coronavirus curves in Britain, Canada, and Germany and, and Italy, they look like mountains. So the virus is going up and it's steeply climbing back down. Um, but the graph in the US is showing a plateau and, and maybe even show another climb. And she argues that America is too broken to grapple with the virus. Is she right, Jason? So I don't think we're broken. I think our leadership is broken. And this is an important point for people to make when you're talking with your network of friends and coworkers and everybody else. It's an important time to drive this home with an election a few months away. And, and here's what I mean when I say it's really that our leadership is broken. Is I'll give you a few reasons. One, we didn't have a genuine discussion about just spending the money to ride this out. You got to ask yourself, what is the point in being the wealthiest nation in human history if you can't pay the rent for 12 months? Now, I'm not saying that means everybody would have stayed home 100% for 12 months, but the idea that we had to frantically go back to a, a reopening and acting like things were normal again, that's just not the case. We, we didn't have to do that, and we didn't have leadership that actually pursued that idea. And had we had it, uh, I think it could have happened. And the second is we, we have not had a unified message, even from, I'm not even talking like the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm talking the president, the CDC, the White House, they're all all over the place. And had you had a unified message, it would have made a real difference. A unified message that said, wear your mask. And then finally, leading by example, doing things, had the president done things like wearing a mask, talking about social distancing, actively socially distanced himself it would have made a difference. It would have been the difference in that it would have been cool to do this right. I don't think America in this case is broken because I think the American people were ready to be led and we have a leadership that refused to do it. Yeah, what's really sad about this is that many of the states that have the worst spread, you know, you look at Florida, Texas, Arizona, those are the states that aren't mandating mask wearing. And it seems like masks, like everything else in American life, have become politicized. You know, every day in America seems to be election day. 
Uh, and so over the weekend, I, you know, I'm, I've been down here in North Carolina. I'm originally from New York and I live in New York most of the time, but I've been down here and I drove from Asheville, North Carolina, which is a largely liberal city to a place called Chimney Rock, which is a, a vacation town, mostly frequented by uh, folks in rural areas. And I, in, in Asheville, everybody's wearing masks. And then you go to Chimney Rock and not only are people not wearing masks by and large, but they're all on top of each other. It shouldn't be this way that, you know, I could predict your adherence to a public health guideline based on your politics. And I say that not to castigate the people not wearing masks. You know, I just want them to be okay. And none of us are perfect. But it seems like their leaders could be doing a better job of modeling and convincing them of the importance of these restrictions. Before you even continue, like, let's, let's talk about the term their leaders, right? Because theoretically, we all have the same leadership in this country. But we're so divided, particularly in our news sources, that for me, when I go to a restaurant, like, and I only go to pick up food. So when I go to pick up food, and I see the people inside, and they're not wearing masks, I'm not thinking you're putting me in danger by spreading this around the community, like a little bit of that. But mostly what I'm thinking is every member of the wait staff in this restaurant is wearing a mask. And I get really angry because I think you're saying to them, you don't matter. I matter. You do not matter. You're here to serve me. And so I have this sort of progression I go through. First, I get angry about that. And then I remember, based on where I live, a good portion of the people are watching Fox News. So their leaders are coming to them through that medium. And if you believe that that is news and you watch that and you watch these people who I think are basically actors staying at home in their basement telling you that everything is normal and real Americans don't have to wear masks, then your logical conclusion is, I don't have to wear a mask. This thing is basically over. And so I go through this evolution of starting out angry and then just feeling yeah. a little bit sad. No, I agree. And I think one of our big projects here on this podcast is, is finding as many effective ways as possible to talk to people who may disagree with us. And so I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine where I grew up in Staten Island, uh, Mike Smith. He posted just now, I was reading on Twitter as we were waiting here, uh, or on Instagram, uh, if you're too embarrassed to go out in public wearing a mask, I better not see you wearing a Jets jersey either, uh, which I thought was a particularly <laughs> funny way to put the point. The same could be said to my uh, Buffalo Bills fan friends. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, and, and I think like if it's Mets, Jets, Buffalo Bills, if you're a fan of Knicks, if you're a fan of any of those teams and, and you're proud to wear that jersey, then uh, you should be okay wearing a mask too. But you know, <laughs> yeah. one thing that's particularly worrisome is that this is starting to hit big business and not all of these companies are making great decisions. And so AMC Theaters initially announced that its cinemas wouldn't require masks. And this is their quote from the company, because they don't want to be drawn into a political controversy. And then they finally backtracked, thankfully. What's going on here? Everything has become so political, whether it's about COVID or, or anything else. I think an important argument for us to make to our friends in any political conversation where someone is espousing being on the fence about whether or not to vote for Trump, one of the first go-tos for me is, aren't you tired of everything being political? Don't you want to be able to watch football and not have to think about politics? Don't you want to be able to do things like put on a mask if you think it's the safe thing to do and not feel like you're making a political statement? Because it's this president who makes every single part of life political because of his desire to insert himself into every single part of our lives. He can't stand the idea that there's a, a moment of news that doesn't talk about Donald Trump. And so as a result, we're constantly confronted with politics in our face. 
I'm tired of that. I I want a president who's a sports fan, but doesn't tell me that my cheering for one team or watching one sport says something about my politics. And I think the last point on this whole thing around the masks, I think we could talk about this forever, is I've seen this, this sort of conflation with wearing a mask with being weak. And I think there's this sort of false bravado I often see. There are tons of memes and clips and everything being shared on uh, in, in one side of the spectrum saying that folks are not scared of the virus. Uh, and I have to say, like, I sometimes pretend to be really macho, but I'm pretty scared of this virus. And I'm wondering why, no, why not enough people are right now. It, it reminds me of this thing that happened during the DC sniper when so I was living in DC when when the DC sniper uh, was going on, and at the time I had been a few months in to ROTC, so I'm I'm going to law school, but I'm also uh, in uniform a couple of days a week and and doing drills and and all this physical training and everything. And I remember that the big thing people were saying at that moment was go about your daily lives, go about your business, don't let the terrorists win. <laughs> and and then I remember being at an ROTC class and there was this sergeant first class uh, who had a combat patch who at the time this was pretty soon after 9-11 so that wasn't all that common so he had he had been uh, I think in in Afghanistan already and he said hey um, all this stuff about going about your daily lives uh, that's really stupid don't do that he said uh, there's a sniper out there I don't know if you heard uh, so when there's a sniper stay in your house stay in your house and if you have to go outside run it doesn't mean the ter- the terrorists win if you get shot. Don't don't do this ridiculousness, and and that makes all the sense in the world to me, right? Like there is this natural American character that is defiance. Like any time that there's a threat, we are going to be defiant in the face of this threat. That could not be dumber than in the face of a virus that can kill any one of us, but especially our parents. Like what is tougher than protecting right. your parents? Like wear your mask. Right. I mean, it's part of a larger trend, which is there's this this effort to try to show liberals as just weak. We Liberals are weak. They don't want to defend our country. Liberals are weak. They're afraid of the virus. Liberals are weak. They don't like to hear competing viewpoints. And, you know, for our listeners, this will be a common theme as we kind of come back to this and try to arm you with enough information to be able to handle those types of critiques. Moving into the more personal side of this virus, uh, we're going to have a segment, as long as, unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with this virus, we're going to have a segment that we're going to call Quarantine Corner. Uh, I'm sure we're not the first or even the hundredth podcast to sort of share how we're dealing with this virus, but you know, every day largely feels like Groundhog's Day, and it, and it, and it seems like we're going to be in for an even longer period of isolation than we originally thought. And so we're going to each share just personal highlights or lowlights from our week uh, as it relates to the virus. So Jason, anything unique happened in your world that you want to share? Our big thing this week was that we have developed, I think the term for it is a pod with, with another family, which is, so there's a, a family that we're really close to, um, a couple of Davion and Shani, uh, who are really good friends of ours and their, and their kids are in True's class. And, and so we're all really tight and we're all being really good about social distancing and we're all quarantined. And we were all kind of going crazy and our kids wanted to hang out. So we said, let's make a pod. So that's now we do stuff with them. We go to their house. We're able to to be in close proximity to them because none of us are leaving our houses. And that was awesome. We did that this week. It felt very normal. We hung out and, and had pizza and the kids wrestled. It was, it would have been the most pedestrian regular thing in normal times, but it made my week. What about you? 
Well, you know, one consistent theme in this podcast is going to be that we live very different lives, even though we're roughly the mm-hmm. same age. Uh, and so for folks who are just getting to know me, I uh, am single uh, and I'm kind of like your prototypical New York bachelor. So most of my stories are going to be a little different uh, and don't involve kids and, and pods. <laughs> but I, uh, I've been taking Italian lessons for a while on this website called Verbling, where you just do a live lesson uh, with somebody usually in a different country. And shout out to Ettore from Sardinia, who's been my, my guide for a while. And what's been interesting is that at the beginning of this, this whole coronavirus nightmare, I was con- basically consoling him in very bad Italian because Italy was getting crushed. Then we were bonding over the fact that both New York and the United States and Italy were getting hit the hardest. And now they're golden over there and starting to talk about opening up in a responsible way. And he basically is just apologizing and consoling me. So we've really come full circle. So how is his English? Uh, His English is infinitely better than my Italian. Otherwise, we wouldn't really communicate about much other than like basic foods and greetings. I basically have to uh, prepare in the morning because there's like this banter that we have back and forth. And I have to like look up on Google Translate so I can have something unique to say every morning about what I did the day That's before. That's awesome. That is slightly different than how I'm experiencing uh, quarantine. <laughs> well, on to even weightier topics, we're going to have a segment that we're going to call This Week in Misinformation. And this really gets to the heart of why we do this podcast. Uh, every week, we're going to bring to you just one thing, whether it's a meme, an article, a talking point, an ad. Uh, from Republicans that we think are the kinds of things that are going to show up at your dinner table, at your dining room table, in your conversations with friends. And we're going to tell you as much as we can about what's true and what's not and how to respond to that information. Uh, And so, Jason, what do you have for us this week? So this week, I've been seeing this video that has been making the rounds among conservative friends, and it's what I want to talk about. It's by this woman named Savannah Misner. It has over 8 million views on Facebook, over 350,000 shares, and in it, she's standing in front of an American flag, which is how you know that she's a patriot, and she's cataloging a litany of injustices that the left is inflicting on her. If I say all lives matter, I'm a racist. If I stand for my flag, I have to apologize for it. I'm not allowed to go to church, but I can burn churches to the ground. I'm not Tons of my friends in Staten Island and Mississippi have been sharing this thing, and I would say, you know, this is a, a it's a couple minute video, but these are claims that you're going to see in a bunch of different venues. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to pick the first three claims that she makes because we don't have enough time to go through everything. And I'll start with the first one. So she starts this video by saying, if I say all lives matter, then I'm a racist. And so I'll start by just giving you a sense of how I think about that statement. So first of all, if someone says, this is just my opinion, is if somebody says, Black Lives Matter, and you respond with All Lives Matter, you send the message that you don't care a lot about the injustices against Black people. And I can give you an analogy to explain why. So like, let's say that, you know, Jason, your friend comes to you and says, hey, you know, my mom is, she's dying of cancer, and I'm obviously devastated by this. And they say to you, you know, cancer is just horrible. It's a nightmare to deal with. And, you know, what if you just responded by saying, you know, all diseases suck. Uh, And actually, there are other diseases, too. So we don't really want to focus on cancer right now. And then let's say if like that mom dies and the same friend is giving a eulogy at the funeral and then you interrupt and you say, wait a minute, we all experience loss here. And, you know, everyone is really special here. We don't really need to hear about this woman's life. You get the point is that Black Lives Matter doesn't begin with an only Black Lives Matter. 
what people are saying is there's a particular set of injustices that we're trying to call attention to. And if you respond to that by saying all lives matter, what you're saying is that particular situation and set of injustices that you're trying to bring to the forefront, I want to generalize my way out of it so we don't have to have this conversation. Yeah, I think it's really important to tell people uh, that Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter too. Black Lives Matter also. And the reason that's so important is I was talking with my friend Don Calloway about a week ago, and he said something that I thought made a lot of sense. And it's something for all of us to keep in mind as we have these conversations with people who don't yet agree or don't yet understand. And that it's that when you have gone your entire life being in the position of benefiting from white privilege and and having society be a certain way, but not having noticed that it was that way, thinking that's normal and thinking that's everyone's experience, that when things start to transition toward full inclusion of everybody, white, black, or otherwise, then to you, that doesn't feel like everybody's getting included. It feels like the threat of exclusion for you, right? If if you've always been in a, case, in, in a position of you know a superior opportunity and all of a sudden things are starting to get equal well you're not going to process that necessarily as fairness you're going to process that as unfairness toward you and that's wrong but it's the reality of how a lot of people feel so we have to start by understanding that which is why we have to explain what means black lives matter also and then if that doesn't work it's always good to start by trying to make people laugh and Michael Che had a bit on this in one of his stand-up specials where he said, look, Black Lives Matter is, is the lowest possible barrier. Black lives matter. Not matters more than you, just matters. <laughs> matters. <laughs> just matters. <laughs> That's where we're starting the negotiations. <laughs> matters. We can't agree on that shit? What the fuck is less than matters? <laughs> Black lives exist, can we say that? Can we say? Which is a great point, and it's also like delivered with a little bit of humor, but I think it's a good way to get that point across. People are playing semantic games with this and saying, like literally the, t the phrase, all lives matter, like they're just they're trying to defend the phrase and and what i've been saying to people is where did that phrase come from before this it's a response to black lives matter it wasn't a thing you were saying before black lives matter was a thing and so if you think of it in the context of as a response not as just a standalone sentence it takes on a whole different meaning so that's the first claim she made the second claim she made was she says if i stand for my flag then i have to apologize for it jason what do we think about this claim well, this this is like they've been doing this for a while, right? The the idea that that somehow, I mean, and actually, this goes back even before uh, Colin Kaepernick. The, I mean, if you if you're like me and you're a big fan of country music, this has been a straw man argument in country music for like thirty years. The idea that people are out there having to apologize for flying the American flag. Literally, no one has had to apologize for flying the American flag. That's that's not a thing that people have to apologize for. But you can't just say to somebody, that's not a thing people have to apologize for. Because to them, it feels like it's something people have to apologize for. So it's helpful to just say, okay, obviously what you're talking about is the fact that there have been some people whose manner of protest is to kneel while the anthem is being played. And those people are largely professional athletes. So I always say, clearly you don't like that manner of protest. How would you prefer they protest? And 
you know, often someone will say something like, well, just not, not during the flag. And I say, okay, when, when during the game? And they'll say not during the game. And I say, okay, when do you watch them? If not when they're playing football or when they're playing <laughs> basketball. So I just keep going. And so in general, it's helpful to keep asking these questions because if you ask these questions in a way that's not aggressive or any questions in a way that's not aggressive, then, you know, it feels more like a conversation and people, they'll put their guard down a little. And eventually you, you can't hope that they're going to, it's not a few good men, you know, you're damn right. I did. And I do it again. It's not going right. to happen. It's, it's loosening the jar for the next time, helping them see that, okay, I suppose I can see that they sort of have to do their protest when we're paying attention. Otherwise it doesn't accomplish anything. Right. Yeah. And I, I think what they're trying to conflate is people apologizing for statements that they've made or the way that they've engaged protests. Like, you know, Drew Brees is a great example. Uh, I, I can't get into her head, but maybe she's talking about Drew Brees. Drew Brees didn't apologize for standing. He apologized for criticizing the protests. And, you know, the, the way that we know that this is being totally blown out of proportion and that they're, they're playing the victim here is that most of the NFL, from what I understand, did not kneel in protest. I didn't see many, if any, of these folks having to apologize, nor should they. It's a choice. They're trying to create this sense of panic and epidemic that just does not exist. Uh, speaking of which, by the way, the third claim is the following. I am not allowed to go to church, but I can burn churches to the ground, she says. Now, let me start on this one because she's talking about a state that I spent some time in uh, in a past life. Uh, there was one church uh, that I could find on the internet. And maybe if there are others, folks could certainly send it to me. I don't want to minimize any suffering that's happened here. But there was one church that was burned. And it seems like it was an apparent retaliation against COVID restrictions. Uh, and as of at least this recording, I couldn't find the resolution of this case. So there was one example. And so I want to honor that that is a shitty circumstance. And it's horrible that any church would get burnt down. But I'll just start by saying one church being burned down in, in a nation of many, many, many churches is not a trend or an epidemic. But what else, uh, Jason, should we take away from this comment? So this is a pretty classic approach where they take some really extreme, like the right will take some really, really extreme uh, thing that happened that obviously everybody would be against and attribute it to all of us. Actually, I see this as an opportunity when folks do this, because if someone's going to say that we're burning down churches, uh, it's an opportunity to, you should start with, look, it was this one time. And then you say, that has nothing to do with the left. It has nothing to do with liberals. And, and then you just, because you're having this conversation with somebody because you have a personal relationship with them. And then you say, do you think I would be in favor of burning down a church? If they don't say no, then you know, that friendship really shouldn't have existed in the first place. And then you say, do you think I would support people who think burning down a church is okay? And you can just keep asking until the point where you say, so you can see that this is some crazy thing that happened and all of us are against it. And then you can turn it into, so this is something we agree on. Like that would never be okay. And, and in general, personalizing this stuff is so important. And I've been talking about this for a long time that 
you have to personalize these conversations because that's the advantage you have in having a conversation with someone you have a personal relationship with. So for instance, on everything having to do with systemic racism or Black Lives Matter, you, you got to give a personal example. Don't do one in their life. Don't say, hey, look, you have this great job. Do you really think you would have that if you were black? Because they're going to say no, because their ego is all wrapped up in the idea that they worked hard. But you can give one from your own life. So, for example, in my situation, I say, look, I became more or less famous in one day several years ago because I put out an ad that went viral where I assembled the gun while blindfolded. And I made this muscular argument for gun control, and it's really changed my life, and it's largely changed my life for the better. And then what I tell people is, if I were black, do you think that ad would have worked the same way? Do you think I could stand there with a menacing look on my face, never smile in an empty warehouse, and assemble a rifle while blindfolded, and, and have people react to that ad in the same way? I don't believe I, I would. I, I believe that people would have would have... Even even liberals, a lot of liberals unknowingly would have responded to it in a way that is coming from a place of systemic racism and say, this glorifies gun violence. This seems, uh, you know, intimidating. It seems menacing. And, uh, and so I think it's helpful to find times in your life where you've benefited from white privilege, if you're a white person, and systemic racism, and point that out to them. Because it shows vulnerability, but it also helps illustrate it. Yeah, I think the personalizing approach really works. I I have a friend who runs a, a really good bar in Staten Island. I would say our friendship has been on the rocks during this COVID uh, crisis because the the bar has been closed. You know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe even like a month and a half, two months ago now, I got a barrage of text messages from him basically blaming me for his bar being closed. And, you know, what I what I tried to say to him uh, with limited effectiveness, but probably better than any other approach was, look, do you think I want your bar to close? So why don't we just start from that? Like, let's just start from the premise that we both share the same goals, and hopefully that can that can lead us somewhere. Just to close the book on our friend with her video, you know, she makes another claim, which is I'm not allowed to go to church. And I just want to quickly dispense with that, which is you're not allowed to go anywhere if the restrictions are proper, right? So like if you're singling out church, it's not that people are saying, let's go after churches because we hate religion. It's saying, let's just go after all you know public spaces where large people are gathering. But church is not a building. Church is a gathering of, of people, a spiritual gathering of people. And that can happen on Zoom just like anything else. And people aren't banning that. So this is not persecution of religions here. We have a uh, segment about giving, we call it unsolicited campaign advice. And the sort of genesis of that term is I used to work for David Axelrod, and he used to joke, uh, this was during the 2008 campaign, that in his inbox, he was just the recipient of a ton of generous, unsolicited advice. And he was obviously joking. It was annoying to him. We're going to hopefully give advice that's a little less annoying. Uh, Jason, what do we have this week? So I have been talking with a lot of friends who, like, I've been doing a lot of headlining Zooms and that kind of thing for people who are running for Congress and that kind of thing. Uh, and and that's easy. Like, that's easy to do. What's much harder is for the friends I've been talking to who are running for local office. Maybe they're running for re-election as a state senator, state representative, or they're running for that office for the first time. And they can't do what you usually do running for that office, which is you go knock on doors, you go meet the people. And so some of the advice that I've been giving some of them is you take the voter file and the voter file has uh, phone numbers in it. And instead of just going door to door and knocking on every door, if 
you are on a street and you, in between each door, you call the number for the next house. And if they're not there, you leave a message letting them know you were, you were in the neighborhood. But if they are there, you say, and you just do this in the, in the least creepy way possible. You say, Hey, I'm running for this office. I'm on your street today. Obviously we want to be safe. So I didn't want to knock on your door, but I wanted to let you know that if you'd like to have a conversation uh, through the window, or if you'd like me to stay six feet back and come to the door, I'd love to talk to you about my candidacy. Now, my guess is most people are not going to take you up on this, but they're going to remember that you actually went the extra mile. And I don't think it takes that much longer. So that's my unsolicited campaign advice for the week. We're going to have a, a series of awards we give out uh, every week as well. Uh, and, you know, the background here is I used to be a school principal and, and every week in our student assembly, we would recognize uh, the achievements of, of our students. And I think it would be we'd be remiss if we didn't recognize above and beyond behavior uh, of our Republican friends. Uh, and so we're going to give out a few awards. They'll change from week to week, but some of them will stay the same. And, and the first one we're going to give out, we're going to call it the Lindsey Graham Total Capitulation and Submissal Award. And this is going to be reserved for a Republican politician uh, who knows better but is playing the part out of cynical calculation. Jason, who's our winner for this week? This week, it's Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio has this this tweet where he says, you know, jobs destroyed, schools closed, and graduations canceled and on the advice of experts who then suddenly decided the risks of some large gatherings were acceptable. So from now on, while their input is still valued, they don't get to decide what to cancel anymore. And all of this was with a link to where Dr. Fauci said that football may not happen this year. And the reason that I want to give the award to Marco Rubio here, uh, other than the fact that like he could easily get a Lifetime Achievement Award in this category, is that this is the most classic Marco Rubio thing. Because in this tweet, he's not like really calling anybody out by name. Like He doesn't have the stones to say anything really specific about Fauci. He just refers to the experts and then links to a thing about Fauci. He wants to say something clearly about the fact that uh, the protests where most people were wearing masks, that, that those largely went without people being outraged about it spreading COVID. But at the same time, football is something that, that they say, well, this would not be a time when we, when it's acceptable to spread COVID. So he has many points he wants to make, but he knows that any of those points might actually require a spine and him to stand up straight. So instead, he's just doing just enough to have the president feel like he's on his side. I mean, it's it's a pretty classic Marco Rubio tweet. Yeah, as if, if, as if Dr. Fauci, if asked, and I'm not even sure if he was asked, but wouldn't just be like, hey, yeah, if you're going to protest, wear a mask and try to stay six feet apart. As if Fauci like abandoned science because it was the protests. I think we have a second award, Jason. Who, what's that award? Yeah, yeah. Second award of the week is what we call the Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award. Uh, this goes to a member of the Trump administration each week who tells a public and easily falsifiable lie. Uh, Ravi, you go ahead. I have a feeling that this winner is gonna gonna be. Uh, we're gonna be talking about her a lot from week to week. But it's White House Press Secretary uh, Kelly McEnany, and basically she was you know, doing the White House briefing and responding to a statement Trump made at his rally this weekend. And, and what he said was, the president said, you know, when you do testing to that extent, meaning the extent that we've done, which hasn't been a lot until recently, you're going to find more people and you're going to find more cases. So, so I said, I to, said my people, to my people, slow the testing down, please. The White House press secretary said Monday that the president was speaking in jest at the rally. Uh, 
and that he did not tell people to slow down testing. And I, that's not necessarily the lie here. I think it's what she said afterwards. It was a comment that he made in jest, specifically with regard to the media coverage and pointing out the fact that the media never acknowledges that we have more cases because when you test more people, you find more cases. So basically, this is their narrative. The media is hysterical about coronavirus uh, growth in this country, and they're making a mountain out of a molehill. Never mind the fact that the president said that morning, <laughs> I don't kid when asked about whether he has to slow down testing. And then he later on said, cases are going up in the U.S. because we're testing more than any other country. So I'm just going to pause there. Both the press secretary and the president are saying the only reason why cases are going up in this country is because we're testing more. That's the lie that gets them the award. Why is that the lie? Because the raw count of positive tests have started to rise as the share of tests that are positive have begun to rise. So both the number of tests and the percentage of the tests that we're giving that are showing up positive are going up. And certain numbers that you cannot hide the data on, like like severe hospitalizations due to coronavirus, are going up in key states. So we have a coronavirus problem here. The, the lie here from the, both the president and from the press secretary is not that he was joking or not. We don't know that. It's their attempt to explain away the data by saying that we're just testing more and we're not seeing more cases. I actually, in this case, oddly enough, I think this is a cause for some optimism, right? About where the country is. I would love to see where you're going with this. Well, you'll see, you'll see where the country is going politically, because it's so easy with Trump in charge to feel every day like we woke up and we lost the election again. Like every time he does this awful stuff, which is every day, but you know, you don't have to look at the polls, which have Biden way ahead. You don't have to look at all that stuff because we're skittish about looking at that stuff because that stuff was the case before. You could just look at some of the conversations you're having with friends like I am. And I have this buddy, Sam, who he won't say whether he voted for Trump in 16. Uh, but I know he watches Fox News and he says a lot of like Trumpish type stuff. And even he this week was like, you know, I think I might have to vote for Biden. He, he was like, I, I think, and it was real funny, he goes, uh, I think maybe, maybe Trump just can't handle this COVID thing. Like, maybe he just can't handle a crisis. Look, there's always going to be 30-some percent that are ride or die with the guy, but he does need more than that. And one of the natural things, and this is where I get to where there's a reason to be optimistic with an election coming up, is that one of the natural things about a president is they're so overexposed. Like, we we see them every day. We hear them every day. And so even presidents you like, you know, usually like toward the end of the second term, you're not like, I'm tired of them, but you are feeling often in a way that's sort of, yeah, I'm ready for a new voice. Now, Trump has made sure that he's in front of us all the time, every single day. And now he's doing it in a way where, I mean, this is so blatant that even Fox News can't paper over. I mean, Fox News tried to say, obviously, he was being sarcastic. Everybody in the Trump administration was asked, well, he's clearly kidding because they've invented a character and the character's name is Donald Trump. And that character behaves in responsible ways. And then the real Donald Trump usually comes out and is like, no, I, I don't I don't I don't do that. And so it's just getting to the point where even that is getting through the filter. And people like my friend Sam are like. You know, I think maybe this guy's not up for this. And and that and that makes me optimistic. It's just another way to remind people like, hey, everything is about him. Even the risk of coronavirus is about him. And how is it about him? He wanted the numbers to be he didn't actually care if less people got sick. He just wants us to know about fewer people being sick. Yeah. And even people who like him are like, Yeah, he kind of does he's pretty much about him. Yeah. So 
I agree with that. I think, you know, I have a close family member who uh, two weeks ago during the, um, the, the insane White House photo op in, in, in front of the church in Lafayette Square, he said to me, you know what, I think I'm not going to vote. And this is a Trump's, Trump voter. Now, I want everybody to vote, but I'll take it as a win if a Trump voter decides not to vote. And he said, it's just always about him. You know, and that's what he said. So I think that might be one of the messages that uh, that resonates here and that we, we take home with us uh, as we head to November. We have one more segment, uh, and this is a lighthearted one. We generally try to end lighthearted before we give you some action. Uh, we're going to call this Midlife Crisis Corner. Now, I don't want to offend you. We're not necessarily in our midlife. Uh, I hope not. Uh, but, you know, one day. Wait, I'm, I'm what? What am I, four years older than you? Five years older than you? Something like what, that. How? Uh, Something like that. Okay. But, you know, I'm just optimistic that this podcast is going to last long enough for both of us to be in and through our midlife. Uh, and so <laughs> this segment is just going to be about us sharing something. We're both like fanatics about fitness and wellness and tracking this and trying to optimize our lives. So we're just going to use this segment to, to share some small tidbit uh, and tip from our life that uh, is helping us optimize. Uh, so what do you have for us this week? Uh, for me this week, it's it's the spiritual side of your health. Um and I know that that's maybe sounds like I'm, I'm preaching, like, I don't care what your religion is, if you have one, if you don't, whatever. There's always a spiritual or, or a, whether it's through meditation or whatever. I have a bad habit of uh, like focusing a lot on, I'll, I'll focus on things like, I'm going to get my Murph time down. I'm going to get, and I'll, and I'll do all the physical stuff and, and I'll get my diet in order. And then I'm like, why am I not feeling well? And then I remember, and I go read a book about spirituality or, or that sort of thing, and I start to feel a little better. But what I tend to do is I wait until it's bothering me. And so what I've realized in the last month or so is uh, that's something I just need to make a continual interest of mine, and then I, I won't get overdue on it. That's awesome. Uh, mine is, I think, somehow related. I think I have been journaling for a few years, but I was more like bullet journaling. And if you know me really well, it's things like, this is what I ate today, and this is what I lifted today. <laughs> And over the past month, I've been using this method from this book called The Artist's Way. And I forget what they call the journaling, but it's more long-form journaling about your feelings, which is new for me. Uh, hmm. And so what I've been doing is just basically writing first thing every morning and just kind of exploring how I'm feeling about things from the day before and about the day ahead. And it's super helpful because it, it allows me to anticipate moments where I'm going to make mistakes uh, especially if I if I'm going to be emotional about something. So, like a good example was this weekend where I was having this very low stakes disagreement with a friend of mine, and I journaled about it and basically identified like a a flaw in my system, basically without sharing too much, where I would have just escalated a situation unnecessarily. And because I journaled about it, I anticipated it and came up with an alternative strategy and you know, what would have been a wave was just like a little bump. Um, and so that's hmm. been working for me. That's cool. We're going to end every episode with what we call grab an oar. And this is where we just leave you with something to do out there in the world that's tangible where you can make a difference and help people. Uh, I'll start uh, by just talking about this new organization that I launched this past week. It's called Second Chance Studios. And it's a nonprofit organization that is going to employ formerly incarcerated people starting in New York to do digital media. So things like doing podcasts like this and doing video production and social media advertising, et cetera. And basically we're gonna we're gonna train what we call fellows who are gonna be people coming out of the system. We're gonna train them how to do digital media and then we're gonna get them jobs. And so we're raising money now. Uh, we just hired an executive director and 
you can go visit secondchancestudios.org. That's secondchancestudios.org, all spelled out. And you can donate. Uh, we, we're doing a Kickstarter where we need to raise another $30,000 by the end of the month uh, in order to hit our goals. And so you can help us meet that goal. Uh, and every little bit counts. You know that, like, you texted this to me. And it's like a classic Ravi thing because I read it and I thought, oh, this is really neat. This organization's really cool. Like, oh, we should maybe get one of these people. And then I keep reading the article and it's like co-founder Ravi Gupta. It's just you do so much stuff <laughs> that I was like, oh, yes, of course, this Ravi created this. That makes sense. Uh, so Ravi is as as people will learn as they listen to this podcast that Ravi does like 500 things and I'm still finding out about some of them. So that's this is uh, an example of a really good one. So before we go, uh, one formatting thing and then and then one request of everybody. The formatting thing uh, is in the future, um, we are going to make a habit of not, not always having it just be the two of us. Uh, we are going to have guests, but the way we want to do it is we want to have people be on for the entire show and be sort of a guest co-host. So there'll be a third person in the conversation. And we have some ideas for friends of ours who would be part of that rotating cast of people. But I also want folks to know that if you have some ideas for folks who you think would be really good, uh, you know, co-hosts with us for the show and for this format, uh, then you know, tweet them at us, like, let us know. And Ravi, you should give them your, your handles so that we can get you a bunch of followers. Yeah. I need some more believers out there. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm not quite as famous as Jason. So I'm at Ravi M Gupta. That's R-A-V-I-M as in Mary G-U-P-T-A. Let us know about people who you think would be good for us to have on here so we can look into it. And then the other thing is, uh, let's make sure everybody knows that Majority 54 is back. So post a screenshot of you know your phone or your computer or whatever while you were listening to the show and, and tag us so that we can thank you for doing it so that we can amplify you. Please do that. Let's let as many people as possible know that this is back. And uh, as always, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Special thanks to Diana Kander and Echo Mountain Recording Studios. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.